this is Halbert Dett, who, for a variety of reasons, is going to introduce me. So I'm introducing him. <laughs> Hal, Hal is a longtime columnist with the Annapolis, one-time Evening Capital, now Annapolis Capital, and was the editorial page editor at the Annapolis Evening Capital in 1970 when I showed up for my first newspaper job uh, with a number of liabilities, most prominently an inability to type. <laughs> Hal? That's the story I was going to tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was 1970. Uh, Bob showed up at our uh, newsroom. He had already been hired. Can you hear me back there? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? No. <clears throat> 1970, he had already been hired. He shows up in the newsroom. And uh, I didn't know he couldn't type. <laughs> I only found that out after reading the book. Uh, but uh, that's uh, one, of the, one of the many courageous things that, uh, that Bob did after uh, uh, feeling that his career was going to be as a Marine and uh, this business that happened to him in Vietnam and deciding afterwards to become a, a newspaper man, uh, uh, pretty courageous, but a newspaper man who couldn't type that's beyond courage. That's uh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, if, uh, I soon learned, as the rest of the staff did, that uh, 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 Bob was uh, uh, more of a lot more than a marine trying to find his way into uh, another uh, field. Uh, that he really had uh, what Louis Armstrong called kicks. Uh, he had the journalism kicks, and uh, I and we found this out from a, a couple of pieces he did. One uh, was, uh, uh, I guess, it was a series about the uh, uh, required chapel at the Naval Academy, and uh, Bob being having an inside track to the Naval Academy, having been a graduate uh, uh, of the academy, uh, was able to. Uh, get inside and uh, uh, do some pretty terrific stuff, especially when uh, when Billy Graham showed up uh, on the academy campus and Bob went over to cover it. I'm not going to tell you the rest of that story. You're going to have to read the book. Uh, but it's a great story. Uh, anyway, uh, he uh, went on from uh, the Capitol to... Uh, the Evening Sun, from the Evening Sun, where he covered, uh, among other things, politics. Uh, I guess it became his, uh, uh, the, the big feather in his cap. And on to set up the uh, Washington Bureau of the Evening Sun, and later the Morning Sun, um, Washington Bureau. Um, little did I know way back then that uh, I would be uh, uh, his volunteer chauffeur. <laughs> which I've been for a, a lot of these gigs. He, uh, he's a wonderful friend, a wonderful writer, a wonderful it's, guy. He does. <laughs> he he doesn't. He does. I guess. <laughs> but 
But anyway, without further ado, because you didn't come to hear me, you came to hear Bob uh, and uh, Bob Timberg. Can you guys hear me? Yes. I would, would ask Bob Hillman. Um, Hal, thank you. You're an old friend in more ways than one. I have to tell you all a little bit of a story, and it's about my sister, who fortunately is not here tonight. My sister is a speech teacher, and what she says is, hey, Bob, you know, I saw you speaking somewhere, and you were reading, and, you know, when you give a speech, you shouldn't read. I said, yeah, Pat, but, you know, I can't memorize it, and I get nervous, so I'm better off when I read. He said, no, no, no. When you read, you just put people to sleep. And I said, well, you know, that's not, I don't want to put people to sleep, but I also don't want to stand up in front of people with egg on my face either. So we've, we've had this argument on and off. And the fact is that the one good thing about tonight is my sister, the speech teacher, is in California. <laughs> and so... I mean, it does say something that I took a little time to write something. But at any rate, hello, I'm Bob Timberg. I'm here tonight to talk about Blue-Eyed Boy, my memoir about recovering from serious war injuries inflicted by a Viet Cong landmine that left me disfigured and perhaps more seriously lost along a life path that once it seemed fairly straightforward to me. I was a young Marine officer in January of 1967, near the end of my 13-month tour in Vietnam, 13 days to go, which is very near the end. I had a beautiful wife waiting for me at home. The future, as they say, was bright, until it wasn't. But before I get into that, let me answer the obvious question. Why write this book now? I'm a journalist and author who, for nearly a half century, has struggled not to be defined by a war in a far-off country. It consumed much of my generation, costing the lives of 58,000 men and women. Another 270,000 were wounded. Of the survivors, 21,000 were disabled. 5,000 lost one or more limbs. I was one of the disabled. But land mine or not, I didn't, want, I didn't want my disabilities to control my future. Yet Vietnam and its aftermath has shaped my life to a degree I never would have imagined possible when I was an ambitious young plebe at the Naval Academy. It has shaped my personal life and my work, perhaps most powerfully in my first book, The Nightingale Song, in which I chronicle the stories of five fellow Naval Academy graduates, John McCain, Ollie North, Jim Webb, John Poindexter, and Bud McFarlane, during their wars and their aftermaths. And while their stories were intended to eliminate those of a generation, or at least that part of, a, of the generation that went to war rather than avoiding it. I knew as a journalist that my war and my aftermath was in fact very different. 
I had long told anyone who asked, and a few did over the years, that I would never write my own story. Who needed another book about a wounded veteran? I didn't see the tale as inspirational or, frankly, anything I wanted to dwell on more than absolutely necessary. Yet as the years went by, I began to sense that our nation had returned to a familiar place with deep divisions over unpopular wars and thousands of men and women bearing the scars of those conflicts to a terribly unfair degree. After a long career, I began to appreciate that my story echoed their stories and might help illuminate the true cost of combat to a nation that has sometimes entered its wars a bit carelessly. My greater hope, though, is that the tale I've told in this book will show that with some courage and some luck, those who have paid for our more recent military adventures with their arms or their legs or their skin might regain some of what they lost while serving their country. Blue-Eyed Boy is not so much a story of the wounds I received one day in 1967 or the surgeries that followed over the next five years to repair third-degree burns to my face and arms. This memoir is about recovery and reclamation. In this journey, I had extraordinary help from people who helped, who loved me. First among them was my first wife, Janie, who was crucial to my coming out on the other end of what was a seemingly endless nightmare. It was also the work of a dedicated and talented surgeon named Lynn Ketchum, who over the course of some 35 operations, both as a doctor and in private practice, reconstructed my face. There were also lonely moments. Demoralizing moments. Terrifying moments that were all my own. Truth be told, there still are. Yet Blue-Eyed Boy is about how I gradually found my way back onto my life's path. Maybe not the exact one I was on before my injuries, but one that, in the end, feels authentically my own. I'll be uh, happy to answer any questions, but I'd also... With your forbearance, I would like to read you a couple of passages, sections from the book. Um, promise not to overdo it. <laughs> this, uh, after I was wounded, I spent a decent amount of time in Vietnam where they were basically keeping me alive. And then when they met, decided they had done that, uh, they shipped me off to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, which was just like a way station on the way to Japan where they were going to do other stuff to me. But this, was, this, uh, this scene happened at Clark. And it's, it's sort of leading into it. There was a nurse at Clark who, they, uh, I guess an Air Force nurse, uh, who helped me write a letter to my wife. 
and it was really it was very nice of her and it was difficult for her to because it was hard for me to talk and everything but she did it not all the nurses were that congenial at Clark which is was a permanent hospital and far from the action a familiar kind of stateside officiousness set in it was generally not unkind but frequently was detached I could hear doctors and nurses zipping past, usually in a rush to keep up with the wartime pace of casualties. It seemed at times that we patients were, were no more than parts on an assembly, assembly line, broken pieces of a Marine Corps fighting machine that had to be put back together. I should have been, well... Am I, getting, am I getting booed off the stage? Okay, well. On my second day at Clark, I overheard one of the nurses. She was new, or in any case, I didn't recognize her voice. But I heard the words, Where's the burn? For a split second, I wondered myself, the burn? What burn? Then in a flash of revelation, as swift and brutal as the one delivered by the landmine itself, I knew what she meant. I should have been angry, but I wasn't. I was gripped by fright, stripped of the faux cockiness that had helped me through the previous two weeks the web of defense mechanisms I had subconsciously constructed to protect myself against the reality of my situation. They had been swept away in little more than a second as I realized the burn was me. With two short words, the nurse stripped me of both my identity and my humanity, revealing me as a piece of meat and charred meat at that. No longer was I Bob Timberg or Janie's husband or my parents' kid. I was now the burn, not just in the eyes of some members of the nursing staff at Clark, but in my own bleary, goopy eyes as well. The reality of a serious wounding like my encounter with the VC landmine does not take hold all at once. There was the explosion and the initial pain and confusion. By then, of course, the physical damage has been done. And in my case, that loss alone would stay with me forever. But it's the dawning awareness delivered in a kind of drip, drip, drip water torture of revelation that gra gradually lands an equally vicious psychic blow. And this, too, would stay with me forever if I wasn't the trim, hard-charging young Marine officer, the man who worked himself out of the chaos of a troubled family, who found a gorgeous bride, who was ready to fight and kill for the ideals of his nation, who was I? I didn't know anymore. At the end of the second day at Clark, I felt strong arms beneath my body as I was again trundled from hospital to aircraft. I was told Japan was my next stop. As I was being settled in the plane, one of my handlers, a woman I couldn't see because my head was bandaged, remarked with an audible sneer, 
You must really love all this attention. The remark stunned me, as if I had gotten myself burned nearly to death, merely to experience the tender mercies of military medicine. I felt like I had been spit on. Beneath my bandages, I seethed at the insult, but did not react, could not react, with the fury I felt. Bob Timberg would have erupted, somehow made the woman regret her words, reduced her to fucking tears. The burn just lay there, uncomplaining, a pathetic slab of helpless protoplasm. End of that. And I have a son who's a uh, reporter for the Washington Post and is pretty sharp cookie. And he says, if you're going to read that, you can't leave people with that. You've got to read, you got to read them something they're going to feel good about. So, <laughs> so okay, so giving in to Craig. Um, I'm going to read another little section. Timberg, some woman is shouting about throwing herself the Eastport Bridge said Mike Lewis, the bespectacled city editor, in the clip phrasing he seemed to employ for everything from scoldings to the all-too-infrequent pleasantry. He slammed down the phone as he spoke. The newsroom chatter ceased. I looked up from my desk. Mike was glaring at me. As his stare morphed into what was clearly a glare, I wondered if he was trying to tell me something. He was. Go, he snapped. Second day on the job, first story. I pulled my jacket from the back of my wooden swivel chair, stuffed the reporter's notebook in my breast pocket, slapped my pants pocket to make sure I had a pen, and scrambled down the stairs from our second floor office into the frigid January day. I considered taking my car parked in back. But I, decided, but I decided I didn't know the city streets well enough, so chances were I'd wind up driving in circles and missing whatever action was occurring on the Eastport Bridge. I should note here that this was, I was working at the Annapolis Evening Capitol at the time, so all this happened in Annapolis. So I ran, barely aware of the cold. My breath poured from my nose and mouth like cigarette smoke. Up West Street, Church Circle, around the circle to Duke of Gloucester Street, then down Duke of Gloucester to the waterfront and the bridge. Perspiration rolled down my forehead, into my eyes. My sweat-soaked undershirt stuck to my chest. I passed people on the way, but I was moving too fast to register the shocked expressions I knew would be plastered on their faces as I sped by. You know, i got to interrupt you just to say that one of the things that you sort of need to know is that the whole idea of my becoming a newspaper man was something I hated the idea. I didn't want to do because I was afraid to go out and see people. I didn't want people to see me. And there were some really ugly scenes when people sort of looked sideways at me. And so becoming a newspaper reporter had a real dopey quality to it for me. But I also decided to do it. Why? I had to do something. <laughs> it seemed like a good enough idea at the time. So it's important to know that when you, 
as we go on here. Uh, I, I, I passed people on the way, but I was moving too fast to register the shocked expressions I knew would be plastered on their faces as I sped by. The only thing on my mind was getting to the Eastport Bridge before whatever was going on there was over. I didn't quite make it. The bridge was crowded with police cars, fire trucks, and ambulance, and scores of onlookers who had been herded to the side of the bridge away from the action. But there was no woman hollering about jumping into Spa Creek, the waterway the bridge traversed, or anything else. I was not in good shape. My legs had turned to rubber, my lungs burned, and I was wheezing heavily as I staggered up to the nearest policeman. Sir, you'll have to stand over there, he said, gesturing toward, toward the crowd gathered behind a police line. I raised my hands and waved them back and forth, palms forward, signaling, I hoped, that I was not just another curious bystander and that I would explain my presence as soon as I caught my breath. Eve, <coughs> Cap, I gasped, pulling out my notebook. You were the crab wrapper? Which was a name for the... Said the cop, not unkindly, but in a tone of disbelief. I, an I answered with a series of nods while struggling to catch my breath. You're a little late, he said, giving me what I took to be a self-satisfied self -satisfied smile. It's all over. I turned toward the bridge. Police, firefighters, and medical personnel scurried about, and there was plenty of activity, but alas... No sense of urgency. It was indeed over. A knot began forming in my stomach. I had blown my first story. Or had I? A light went on. Reporters rarely are present at, a scene of, at the scene of, an, of the action while it's occurring and almost always need to reconstruct it by interviewing witnesses. Sure, I hadn't seen the action, but several dozen onlookers had, in addition to the cops and other emergency personnel. Turning back to the officer, I said, what happened? I'm not authorized to talk to the press, he said, um, directing me toward an officer on the bridge who seemed to be in charge. Look, officer, this is my first day on the job. I just need a little help. I won't quote you in the paper. Just give me some idea what's going on so I don't sound like an idiot when I start asking questions. A short silence ensued. Then he said, this lady dove off the bridge. They just fished her out. Is she dead, I asked. I don't know. I think so, said the cop. That's all you get from me. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> they say a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. True, but as I was to learn in the years ahead, and as all the reporters here know, a strand of information can be enough to unravel the most amazing tales if you tug on it skillfully enough. Over the next hour, armed with only the most general outline of, of events, I fleshed out the story. I did it by talking to everything that moved, onlookers as well as officials, opening each encounter by saying, Hi, I'm Bob Timberg of the Evening Capital. Can you tell me what happened here? Most of the people I spoke to reacted, to reacted to my scars, usually with startled expressions of the sort that in other circumstances 
might have triggered a hostile response from me. Not now. I didn't care how spooked they looked when I first approached them. I just wanted them to tell me what they had seen and heard. A couple of impatient cops in in a police vehicle started to pull away before I was done questioning them. I pulled open the rear door, poked my head in and said, Hey, I've got a few more questions. How about I ride along with you? Before they could say no, I was in the back seat, pen poised, notebook at the ready. The cops looked at me like they wanted to shoot me. Instead, they drove me back to the paper, answering questions along the way. I like to think they admired my chutzpah, but they probably were taking the path of least resistance. The next day, the off-lead story on the front page of the Evening Capital carried a double two-deck headline. After pacing Eastport Bridge, woman plunges to icy death in Spark Creek. It began. A 53-year-old Annapolis woman leaped to her death from the Eastport Bridge shortly before noon yesterday, seconds before a city police officer could reach her. Alerted by a passing motorist who reported a woman on the bridge acting suspiciously, Officer Stanley Diggs rushed to the scene and was stopping his car as Mrs. Lovey G. Lindsay of 78 Clay Street plunged through the thin crust of ice covering Spa Creek. (coughs) She saw me, Diggs said, but by the time I got my car stopped, she jumped. The story ran with a dramatic photo by staff photographer Joe Groover showing rescue equipment lifting Mrs. Lindsay's lifeless body from the creek. Missing was a byline. Tradition held that a cub reporter, even one with a war under his belt and approaching his 30th birthday, has to earn his byline. And he can't do it with one story, story, no matter how good it is. I had no problem with that. Whether my name was on it or not, I knew it was my story and I knew I had gotten it right. Only later did I realize that Mrs. Lindsay's watery demise marked the start of my transition from victim to something else. I wasn't sure what. I was sure, though, of a fascinating phenomenon. From the moment Mike Lewis chased me out of the newsroom until I returned to my desk and turned in my story, I had no sense of being disfigured. Done. So Craig is right, right? This is a nicer way to end. Yeah. Uh, anybody have any questions? We ask that you speak into the mic because this is being podcast. Um is is a, a landmine in those and that war is sort of like an IED nest in this war, or, or is there differences? Landmines are, uh, I mean, they're all effectively landmines. But the thing we call a landmine is something that is generally manufactured in a factory, as opposed to something that a bunch of guys get a bunch of little explosives and they put some fragments around it. So that when it explodes, it becomes shrapnel. It, it, it's a it's an informal landmine, is what an IED is. 
And and the way you trigger an IED is, I mean, the way you trigger a landmine is either pressure detonated where there's something sticking up, and when you go over it, it goes down and triggers the, the, the explosive, or what's called a command detonated mine where there's somebody sitting in the trees, say, and watching you or your vehicle go along, and they're st- sitting there effectively with something like a button, and when you get they, you, when you get over the mine, they just go push the button down, and the explosion goes up. That's a command detonated mine. Anybody else? Well, was was all your treatment through the VA? None of my treatment was through the VA. Why? Not? All my treatment was through military medicine through the through the Navy. Oh, okay. Um, the, so they and, were and treating. If you understand the distinction, if you're, I, I was still on active duty when I was wounded, and all my treatment was by by, by the, the the Navy and Navy facilities, and in fact Army facilities too, because I had some stuff at Walter Reed, um, and even at a certain point, I had I had I had several about a year of surgery. In in a in a private uh, medical facility out in Kansas City, where my old doctor, who had been a Navy commander, was now in private practice, and somehow we persuaded the Navy or the Pentagon or somebody to pay for me to go out to Kansas City about once a month and have uh, surgery. That lasted for about a year. As far as as far as the VA is concerned. No, I didn't. I had, I had one experience with the VA, and it frankly was, was was fine. Which you know, which it doesn't mean I'm in any way endorsing what's obviously a, a criminal situation in the, with the VA right now. D- during your career as a journalist, Bob, back here. Oh, hi, hi. Did you ever have the opportunity to go to a cover a war or any kind of military action? No, no, I didn't. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I made it clear that I didn't want to do that. It wasn't that I didn't want to cover a war. I didn't want to cover the military. And the reason I didn't was because I had realized at a certain point relatively early on that I was a pretty good reporter. And any place, anybody I covered and anything I covered was sooner or later going to have something... <coughs> Some something that needed to be written about in an unfriendly way, and um, you know, basically an expose. It could be a a cheapo gotcha story, or it could be a big serious one. And but I knew I was going to find those stories, and I didn't want to write them about. I did not want to write stories about people I had gone to war with. So I just said, you know. I know you think it's a great idea because I'm a you know a veteran and I was a Marine and now I'm a reporter and I've been to Stanford and, and you think I should be a Pentagon reporter. No, not a chance. And fortunately, people respected that. Can you, can, do you remember... Where's that position? voice coming from? Excuse me. Here. Gilbert. Oh, hi, Gilbert. Hi. Um, 
Can you remember the editorial position of the Sun? Those guys didn't talk to us, so I really don't know. What what position did they take on the Vietnam War? Did it did it did it swing? Did it support it? Did it support it and then not support it? Or do you remember? Well, I don't. Uh, I, I think I have the memory to remember if I ever cared about it, which I never did. Uh, Hal Burdett, who was the editorial page editor of the Capitol, probably knew what the Sun's position was. I really never cared what was on the editorial page. I just didn't care. I mean, it was. Uh, I, I. I mean, who cared? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, reporters report stories. That's what we do. We don't worry about, you know, what people say about them. If, unless we get it wrong, then it's very bad. But if we got it right, you know, we just keep going. Sometimes, you know, in, in fairness, the, the Sun had a great editorial page editor named Joe Stern. And I, I have to say from time to time I read some of the stuff that was on Joe Stern's editorial page. And it was very erudite and very penetrating, and it was, and I admired it. But I don't think till after he was retired for about twenty years that I ever admitted it to him. (laughs) (laughs) But he was some—he was really something. And he had—and he had guys also on that. I just didn't like the idea of editorial. I didn't want to be an editorial writer. I didn't want—I didn't want to be. I didn't want to think about editorials, but there were really some fine people there. Peter Jay, uh, Barry Raskovar, uh, loads of really good people. I just ignored them, and, except when they were reporters, then they were my friends. What about Brad Jacobs? Brad Jacobs was... He was... He was a little too... What's the word, Hal? Blue-nosed? Uh, huh? Yeah, he was a little too Maryland club for me. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think I, I never had a sense that, that Brad Jacobs, who was the editorial page editor of the Evening Sun, had a, had a strong sense of... of uh, I, you know, if if I saw Gene Oishi, who was a fine reporter for us, and then later went on to work for Harry Hughes, if Gene Oishi was picked up being dead drunk on the street, Brad would probably say, Brad would probably say, "Yeah, string him up," and you know, I would say, "Yeah, it's Gene." <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, you know. I mean, actually, Brad was highly, highly respected. I just like Joe Stern better. Uh, Bob, in, in the book, you talk about uh, you, you tell the story about how the Nightingale song happened, and and you mentioned uh, a minute ago the idea of you know covering people and so forth. Uh, any thoughts on? Uh, Senator Webb's talk today at the press club where he said he would be op- he's at least considering the idea of, of the presidency. Yeah. Um, he actually said that on um, he, he actually said that about a month ago on uh, 
the Diane Reams show, at least the, the uh, NPR uh, show that runs in Washington, actually is syndicated, and he said, well, you know, we're thinking, we're just, I'm going to have to think about that, as opposed to, no, not a chance. It's, and I, and I had talked to him, and I sort of knew. I told him, I said, "Look, all I want to say is, I'll be your driver, but I'm sure and shit not going to be your press secretary." <laughs> yeah. In the Nightingale song, for sure, you you make the point of the divide that separated those of us who went and those who didn't. Fifty years later, how do you feel about that divide? Um, I, I, I think the way I feel about it is something that I can best explain by quoting an old friend, an, an, actually an Army veteran, who managed to get the less rights, I think it was five times, and survived he said there's a wall five miles wide and 50 miles high between those of us who went and those who didn't, and that wall is never going to come down. And I think he's right. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we hate everybody that didn't go. We just... It's just something that we know about. It's like something we notice, if you will, as they probably notice about us. So. Tom. Um, you heard from disabled veterans. Well, this this has only been out a little bit, so it's not. I have gotten a few emails from people, but it hasn't been a, an overwhelming, um, you know. You know, I mean, I think there might be some more in there. People are saying, hey, you ought to arrange to do this. And I said, well, they got to ask me, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to force myself on anybody, so. Except you guys. <laughs> Gene, are you sober yet? Yeah, I'm, I'm waking up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, this is a famous Gene in case you don't... Not as an editorial writer, but as an author. Oh, you were an editorial writer too, weren't you? Yeah, for sure. Jesus, I forgot. I wouldn't ask you to comment as an editorial writer, but as an author and a historian, what are your views today? Uh, you want to know the truth? I think more about the guys who served than I think about the rightness and wrongness of it. I, I, I never sorted that out. I, I certainly thought about the fact that if we were going to fight it, we should know what we were doing, and we didn't. John, uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't work it out. Robert McNamara never figured out how to do it and nobody else got it you know it just we, I don't know if we ever could have won it and I don't even know that I even care but I think we fought it in a piss poor way 
You agree? Hi. I have a question about, are you still in touch with members of your platoon? No. But my platoon, I, I, I lost my platoon before we ever got to Vietnam. Not that it, there was anything bad happened to them. They just put me on the battalion staff. So. The wire, like, yes. which wire are we talking about? The story of the drug trafficking. Oh, no, I didn't. And what do you think of that kind of reporting ending up to be that kind of fiction, that kind of phenomenon? I think it's pretty good. I do. Uh, I, I have to tell you, though, that in all honesty, although I've seen bits and pieces of the wire, I never got HBO <laughs> and so I was denied that pretty much and and reason I didn't get H HBO it wasn't that I was uh, it wasn't that I was uh, cheap I just knew that I would what I'd really be doing if I had it I would I would be searching all around for reruns of NCIS <laughs> Which, of course, we're miss missing the opening segment of this season tonight. Mike. Bob, uh, in, in the book, uh, one thing that's clear is one reason for, for your injury was you were on a piece of equipment that was ill-suited to the mission. It was supposed to be in water, and that's why it had all this gasoline in it. Um, and you obviously deal a lot in the book with your anger about various things, and but but you never express anger about that and about uh, and and even the the types of things you, you say about how um, poorly fought the war was and I, I was just I was just cu uh, curious about your feelings about that. Well, you know some things are just you know it was never worth it was over when it happened it happened and I mean I don't. I mean, you, you would think, you know, by that reasoning that I w would hate the Viet Cong, you know. Never, barely ever think about them, you know. And I just, you know, Mike, I, I'm just not a hater, you know. And, and I, I mean, I understand what, you know, we should never have been, using the Antos, which is the vehicle he's talking about, as we were. But we did. And, and there were all sorts of dopey things that we did. We tried to build a fence to keep the North, right? We tried to build a fence to keep the North Vietnamese from coming down. You know, you go crazy trying to what we did wrong. It just... But, I mean, you know, the thing is, if we had some smarter cookies in there, uh, maybe that wouldn't, those kind of things wouldn't happen. You know, as Jim Webb says about, about Lieutenant Callie, if all those guys from Yale and Harvard hadn't figured out a way to stay out, the Army wouldn't have taken Callie. But they did, and they took Cali instead. So, yeah. 
just wanted to get your sense. You mentioned uh, you served, obviously, and you also had a long, distinguished career as a journalist. What are your observations of how the media currently has covered military involvement in, in getting into Iraq, getting into Afghanistan? Do you feel the media did a are, good are job? Are you talking about covered? policy or how they covered the action? How they covered the policy that led to the action. Well, I, I, I was uh, the deputy bureau chief of the Baltimore Sun's Washington Bureau as we went into Iraq. And, you know, there's so much hostility directed at the press corps for not screaming and hollering about about that and how we just let it happen. And, you know, my feeling is... I mean, I think I think the invasion of Iraq was the greatest foreign policy blunder in the, maybe in this nation's history, but... Then again, how did it happen? And if the CIA says to you, and all your intelligence sources say to you, that they have weapons of mass destruction, that they have poison gas, that they have nukes, that they have this, it seems to me, unless you can disprove that, or you think someone, or you can prove that someone's lying to you. Going to war is maybe what you do. But I also think that if you're going to take a generation off to war, you're supposed to get it right. And George Bush didn't get it right. Sir. Some of it, yeah. I'm just curious. I guess his most recent book, Breach of Trust, talks about going Yeah, I, I, I haven't read that, but I, I, I think that that there are many of us who think the the end of the drafts created all sorts of problems, that including the ability to invade Iraq. Because it's always easier when you don't have middle class kids and their dads and moms screaming at you. They're guys that already signed up. Okay, I will. I will. Thank you. That's it. Can we do a free at last here? Oh, you have a question? <laughs> One more question. Yes, ma'am. Do you have any thoughts you might share about the future of print journalism? Where's that? Uh, where's that voice coming from? Oh, oh! I thought, sorry, I thought you had a very husky voice there for a second. I'm sorry. Can you repeat? I was wondering if you had any thoughts you would want to share about the future of print journalism. Well, I, I, I have some thoughts, but I don't know that they're all that original. I think that this nation will not know what it's lost until the last newspaper closes down. And suddenly they're wondering where they're getting their news from. Because the TV guys, you know, basically read the newspapers and figure out what to do. And I mean, I just, 
I don't. I think there's got to be some. I, at least I hope there is some sort of financial thing that will make it possible for print newspapers to continue. I have one son that works for the Washington Post, but another son who worked for the L.A. Times. And when they when their newsroom had a massacre, he was one of those who got taken out. And you know, it's very very difficult right now. And I. And you know, I have to say, I find, I find the press more admirable these days, not, not, not in any sort of way of policy or anything. I just can't believe all these people, and basically television reporters, over in Iraq and Syria, and I mean, there's very serious stuff going on, and you know, it's very, very scary. And they're very, very courageous. Maybe more courageous than I would be. Okay. Last question. Two things. Did you... Um, thank you. Did you... Um, on two fronts, did you suffer any post-traumatic stress, um, PTSD? Did I? And also, how long did it take you to get over this uh, feeling that you were disfigured... Um, well, I, I, I've never been quite sure if I had PTSD. Uh, I sometimes, I sometimes think I have when I do something that I'm <laughs> kind of ashamed of. I kind of blame it on PTSD, but uh, I don't know. I guess I did have some, yeah, but not, not the scary kind. Just you know. W- Everybody that fights a war comes back with a little bit of that, and I did, I think. Um, what was your other question? I'm sorry. Well, um, how long did it take you to get over that feeling that you were disfigured? I never got over it. I, I, I still know it. It's just, uh, I just got to a point somewhere where I realized I could function uh, without it, and plus... I think I hypnotized myself in some way. I sometimes, if someone said to me real fast, how old are you? I would say 26. (laughs) You know? It's, and you know, as you'll see in the, I I came up with lots of, I came up with lots of defense mechanisms and lots of tricks, ways to trick myself. And, you know, it, it, it just got to a point where I could. I knew I could function, and it was going to be some painful moments. But screw it, you know. <laughs> and you know, it's. But you know, would I? Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I never ever. But. I didn't let my wounds define me or my future. Though for a time, it was an open question whether they would or not. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.